This is Uniting Nations. I'm Stephanie Van Hook from the Meta Center for Nonviolence, and I co-host the show with Anna Aikeda from Suka Gakkai International. We explore the intersection of the work of nonviolence and the work of the United Nations. On today's episode, we speak with Jean-Nicolas Beuz. He works for the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, UNHCR, as their representative in Iraq. Hi, I'm Jean-Nicolas, and I currently work for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the UN Refugee Agency in Iraq, where we are supporting the response for 300,000 Syrian and other refugees, mainly in the Kurdistan region of Iraq, and also supporting uh, Iraqi who have been displaced by the violence triggered by Daesh, uh, this uh, uh, extremist group, uh, which took over part of the territory of Iraq and Syria and who was defeated in 2017. Mm. Uh, how did you get involved in the work that you're doing with UNHCR? What was your progression? From very early on, I think uh, my parents and uh, and then the in school, I was made aware that I, I was born in the lucky place uh, and certainly in the lucky family, but that we needed also to think about people who didn't have necessarily the same opportunities as us, depending on where they were born, depending on the socioeconomic status of their uh, families, their educational opportunities, and so on. So I'm born in Geneva, uh, which is the hub of the humanitarian uh, UN agencies, of the United Nations agencies dealing with humanitarian response. And therefore, it was a natural link for me to want to join uh, the United Nations, and in particular to join the the protection and the human rights uh, side of the United Nations, because I felt from the very beginning that um, justice, or rather fighting injustices, uh, was going to be my call. It's mm, beautiful. Um, who have been some of your inspirations in this work? Very much the people I meet on a daily basis. Uh, first of all, the, the, the refugees, those who are being displaced by violence, uh, by armed conflict, by discrimination, whether discrimination based on their gender, on their sexual orientation, on their religious belief or their political uh, uh, affiliation. They are the ones who are really inspiring me and many other humanitarians or human rights advocate in our daily walk. Uh, they are the ones who are striving and who are defending their right and making sure that they and their own families uh, survive despite all the odds, all the, 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 the problems that they face on a daily basis. So you can think about uh, women uh, who established herself um, a workshop so she's a Syrian refugee herself, and she's trained as an art educator. And when she arrived in the refugee camp, she decided to have a workshop, uh, not only for children and young adults, but specifically for children with disabilities. Uh, there are many Syrians who have physical and mental disabilities, visible and invisible disabilities, uh, linked to the conflict or, or not. Uh, and she made a point of offering a space for those children in particular to come, uh, be able to 
uh, enjoy painting, uh, singing, or even doing embroidery. These are the kind of person which are really inspiring. She does sound like an incredible person. And, and I think that um, in the kind of work that you're a part of and other agencies as well, government agencies, people look to, to people like yourself who are you know, putting the Band-Aid on the situation while at the same time somewhat dehumanizing the people who are involved, uh, who have been displaced or have been, who are receiving assistance um, by forgetting to hear what their stories are and understanding that the situations they've been put in are unnatural and dehumanizing. And I wonder if you could speak to what your day-to-day work looks like in these situations. You are very right. There is uh, definitely um, a tendency of putting ourselves in the center of the of the humanitarian action. But I strongly believe that uh, actually the agents of change are the people themselves, those who are in those humanitarian uh, situation, whether they have been displaced, whether they are trying to lift themselves out of poverty, whether they are fighting against uh, uh, discrimination of all kinds. We are only here to support and so, sometimes to provide a little bit of, um, of financial or material support and to provide sometimes a bit of a safe space around them, especially when they are being persecuted by armed groups or, or the authorities of the country in which they, they reside. I really believe on this uh, motto that uh, many refugees are using these days. Nothing about us without us. And it's really about putting the voice of those people front and center of the humanitarian action, of the solution. As you say, as humanitarian, we, we put a bind-aid on, the, on often open wounds. Um, the, the solution are often of a political nature and the solution have to come not only from the politicians, the decision makers, but very much from the societies and the people uh, themselves. They have all the means to actually be the agent of change of what they want. Sometimes it's done uh, over decades of, uh, of fights and survival. Uh, but we have to respect that they are the one in charge of their own destiny. It's mm, beautiful, and yet there's um, the support, and as as we were saying, you know, the band-aids they're they're absolutely necessary. People need a place to live. They need shelter. They need protection. They need their basic human rights and human needs met in times of crisis. They definitely need uh, support, especially when they are suddenly uprooted from their communities, from their house. They often lose everything. We, we don't think of it, but most of them will lose even their identity document because that's not the first thing you may think of when you are fleeing uh, armed violence, when you may have been subjected to sexual violence, when uh, you have seen your your father or your mother being killed in front of your eyes, it's not necessarily the paper you think of. And then uh, you need to put a roof above your head for yourself or your loved one, your family. You need then to try to rebuild yourself by uh, getting uh, the means to survive, buying medication, buying food, buying clothes, uh, trying to register your kids in school, uh, and that's where often the band-aid that we provide um, is absolutely, as you say, uh, a necessary step for people to be able to start rebuilding their life and regaining control over their life. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, I, I find in, in different intellectual, academic, and activist uh, conversations that there, there's, there's often lost that nuance that you need both. You need deep structural change and you need immediate support. Uh, some people, you know, look to organizations and say, oh, you know, let's provide charity. Let's provide those basic needs and others that say, I don't, I don't think that it's, uh, we're solving anything by providing basic needs that we just need to work on the deep structural changes and that's all. Uh, so to really, again, speak to that balance between the two that you need, you do need structural change as well as immediate support. You are entirely right. You need the both. And I will say you need the both at the same time. Too often we think that the immediate emergency relief, the, the philanthropic, the, 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 the sense of uh, safeguarding the, the basic humanity by providing humanitarian assistance, um, need to come first. But from the very beginning, we need to think about also addressing those root causes, why people were forced uh, to flee their home, why people were pushed into poverty, why people were discriminated uh, for who they are or what they believe in. And the two have to go hand in hand because, unfortunately, uh, if you look at only the, the prism of humanitarian responses, very rapidly, you have less and less funding available. Uh, people want to do more than just being helped to keep their heads above their above the water. They actually want to be able to strive again in their community and eventually be, uh, as I said, agent of systemic change in their communities, whether it's democratization, whether it's realization of human rights or women's rights or uh, sexual and other minority rights. And that's really very important that we, uh, from the start, think about addressing the root causes while also treating uh, the symptom. Beautiful. And what about those, I mean, those are structural changes within nations, within countries. Uh, now, what, what's your feeling about the effectiveness of uh, the UN as a peace-building organization or what kinds of structural changes do you think will be necessary that, uh, for the UN to take on to improve the situation of refugees and displaced people? Since I joined the UN some 25 years ago, I, I, I've seen really a, a systematic at, attack against uh, multilateralisms, against diplomacy, against uh, a notion that human rights are of a universal value, uh, that we may not uh, agree on everything, but that we have to respect dissenting views or dissenting ways of, uh, of living your life. Um, so the UN is still playing a, a, a very important role when it comes to the uh, high-level diplomacy and high-level engagement at a multilateral level, where I think the UN has not done really enough or not done uh, good up to now is really at the, at the local and at the community level. But there, uh, we have to, to think that perhaps we are not the best equipped. The UN is an intergovernmental uh, processes. We are bound by certain rules. We are managed by 
193 uh, member states who often have completely diverging uh, views about how society should be organized. And where it is important is not to pretend that we can replace uh, what uh, the local and community-based organizations are doing on a daily basis. We need to support them, we need to create the space and protect them eventually in some instances for them to really work at this community level. But again, it's a bit like uh, um, the division between doing humanitarian or long-term development uh, uh, intervention. We need both the high-level engagement uh, of the UN, but also very much the initiative at the local level by individuals or very small local uh, non-governmental organization. Mm. And th- thank you for your your very thorough, uh, thoughtful response about that. It sounds like something that you have thought through uh, quite some time. And I imagine that must be um, very natural to do in your situation. Um, you probably are in a lot of challenging situations and um, obviously you want to do everything you can to help and when you have to think about the limitations of the organization that you're part of. Exactly. We need to recognize our own limitations, our strengths and our weaknesses, and also really being inclusive and transparent with others about what we can do and what we cannot do. And too often, unfortunately, I think that the the United Nations and the big international NGOs, especially in the at the onset of an emergency, they we come and we have a lot of money, we have a lot of staff, and we don't really always respect actually the the community resilience mechanisms which often exist uh, and which are often nurtured by those community-based organizations or individuals uh, who take care of their own societies. And we come and we kind of push them a bit aside. And I think we have to learn to do better, to engage with them from the start and to make sure that they they continue leading. They know their community, they know better the needs, they know better how the communities want to be helped. Uh, and they will stay for the long run. The time will come for the big UN and international NGOs to leave. Uh, for different reasons, because there will be another crisis, because there will be less money, there will be less attention from the media, and so on and so forth. So we jump to the next crisis. Those community-based organizations are staying behind, and we need to make sure that we um, do not undermine their capacity to do good in their own uh, communities. Thank you for that. Um, I just have one more last uh, difficult, I think it's somewhat of a difficult question, but we, um, you, you spoke of protection, uh, being able to offer protection. And um, so you have UN protection, which is usually armed protection. And then you have people and organizations like especially nonviolent peace force who are offering unarmed protection. So, so let me just correct you. There is very few instances where the UN is mandated by the Security Council uh, to use force in order to protect uh, civilian population or to protect even uh, UN personnel. This, this is really granted only in very few exceptional uh, circumstances when there is uh, unanimity 
in the Security Council, which does not happen very often these days, because as I was mentioning before, uh, multi multilateral diplomacy is, is certainly being under attack over the last uh, few years. So most of the UN presence in the world, the overwhelming majority, is unarmed. And what I meant by protection, uh, by presence, it's really uh, by being witnesses to what uh, armed groups, sometimes societies, are doing to their own civilian population and reporting about it, including for the sake of eventually having human rights investigation, of having a tribunal, international, regional, or even domestic tribunal looking at uh, the crimes which have been committed, sometimes by being present as an external uh, and external stakeholders, we can play a role in terms of uh, protection. But protection is also about helping people themselves to uh, get more resilience uh, and know better how to protect their own uh, member of their communities against such arms by authorities, gender-based violence, uh, abuse and neglect of children, abuse and neglect of persons with disabilities or older persons. So it's not very different from what non-violent uh, peace force are, are doing. By being present, by being witness to the crimes which have been committed, by reporting against this, this crime, we can sometimes prevent uh, the crimes, or at least make sure that they don't uh, stay unpunished. And really the fight against impunity, holding to account the perpetrator through criminal justice uh, processes with a punishment, is the best way to prevent the repetition of such crimes. If people know that they are going to be caught and that they are going to pay for their crimes, they will, we hope, but we know, they, we, they will hesitate about committing those crimes. Thank you very much. And I know it must be difficult to be in the situation that you're in, and you must experience a lot of traumatic stress and trauma from the work that you do and, and witness. So thank you for the work that you do. And, and, and even in those spaces, I wonder if you could speak to the possibility of a future without war and armed conflict. What do you think that will take to get there? As humanitarians or as human rights activists, we, we all dream of a world without uh, violence, uh, of a world where everybody would be respected, whatever our, our, our own differences or the way we want to conduct our life, respectful of the life of others. The reality of, um, of humanity is that uh, probably we are far away from this, uh, this dream. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't get discouraged and that doesn't mean that uh, we should not act today to make sure that maybe tomorrow in the future, uh, for the generation to come, we will have a world which will show a bit more respect, not only for the human being, but also for the planet. <laughs>